This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hi, everyone. This is the last Paddock Pass podcast of 2022. And before we wrap up inside Michelin tire warmers for the holiday period and contemplate the true meaning of a free weekend, let's see whether we can actually then function as well as a preheated slick when we come back. My name is Adam Wheeler, a journalist writing for a small, or should that be dwindling, host of outlets, as well as online magazine ontrackoffroad.com. It's good to be back on the show after missing a couple of weeks, but it was superb to hear the great Peter Bomb giving his insights on each respective brand's travails in 2022 during the last two podcasts. And talking to my colleague, friend, and fellow writer David Emmett, Dave, Peter is obviously much better with his motorcycle technical acumen than with his mountain bike skills. And it was refreshing to hear someone who actually knows a little bit more than you do. Uh, the list of people who know a little bit more than me is uh, uh, considerably larger than I would like, actually, uh, add. And also, I think you're being a bit unfair to, to Peter. He's actually um, he's actually uh, a very tasty uh, mountain bike rider. It's just that um, he was betrayed by his equipment, obviously got the setup wrong, uh, too much rebound, and uh, he was high-sided to the moon and ended up breaking his hip. Breaking his hip. But when he pop- popped around, he was looking healthy enough. Um, um, you know, he was he was not even limping particularly much, so he's he, he's healing well. And uh, yeah, I mean, he knows he's forgotten more about motorbike racing than I've ever known. So it's always great to sit uh, sit and talk to him. Well, I mean, we chatted for about an hour and a half before we even started on the podcast. So um, uh, fortunately, that was all in Dutch, so you didn't miss out on anything unless you were able to speak Dutch. Oh, you're just showing off again now, and you? were you tempted to? <laughs> Were you tempted to ask him about the limits of his talent and his ambition, or was that like a step uh, no, too far? No, 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 no. I'm far too, I'm far too polite. Would never, uh, would never stoop to that level. Um, uh, Ad, you can tell he still has the race of spirit, though. I mean, it was what, oh, yeah. two, or th- two or three weeks after uh, he broken his hip, and he was back in Valencia. Yeah. Albeit with the aid of a uh, of a walking stick, and, I mean, it's not uh, bad recovery. Yeah, no, he was he was you know completely uh, completely on it again. So uh, yeah, and there's just no, no no holding him back. Jorge Lorenzo esque. Um, yes, if you haven't listened already to that two parter, then go back and have a check. Well, check it out because it's um, great listening, especially the uh, the second part. I loved how you guys um, you know analyzed the HRC. A few expletives. I think that was that was pretty much uh, the whole shebang summed up. So um, <laughs> also threatening to wobble the base levels on this recording is our other scribe, a title he earns without dispute, Mr. Neil Morrison. Uh, Neil, you finally delivered your Pedro Acosta interview for this show. Um, give us a bit of context there. What was it like to actually talk to the 18 year old who, let's face it, I mean, just over a year ago, his English wasn't really the best. So I imagine it was a bit of a challenge to uh, get some insight out of him. It wasn't that much of a challenge, uh, Ad. We're obviously going to hear the interview a little bit further along in the show. But um, yeah, Pedro's English has come on um, quite a bit in the last uh, year, I would say. Um, probably helped by the fact that he's best pals with Remy Gardner, although I think they do most of their conversing in Spanish. Um, yeah, Pedro does manage to, or has managed to improve his, uh, his English considerably. And um, while it's not perfect, I still think he manages to get uh, a, good bit, a good bit of his insight across. So um, yeah, we did the, uh, the interview back at Sepang. Um, I think the Thursday before the race weekend kicked off, we were all a bit jet-lagged, a bit tired, maybe a bit grumpy after a pretty exhaustive schedule um, and a trip up from Australia. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think it was pretty interesting. So um, yeah, something to look forward to in the show, Ed. 
tired, grumpy. You, you sell it so well. I'm sure everyone's going to, you know, <laughs> sort of, you know, hold on through the show just to make uh, that special section of this particular podcast. Yeah, they're going to think tired, grumpy. It doesn't sound like the Paddock Pass podcast. <laughs> uh, during this particular, I was going to say publication, broadcast, is that the right definition for a podcast or just a podcast even? Uh, we're going to talk about some of our memories, some of our awards, uh, some of our verdicts on 2022, um, as well as sliding the little uh, Pedro Acosta in there for some, um, for some listening. But of course, firstly, we want to extend best wishes to all of our listeners ahead of Christmas. And a hearty thanks, of course, for clicking play or download in 2022, because we should have topped a massive total of 1 million listens before the clock chimes 12 on the last day of December. Uh, it's a phenomenal amount, and we really tried to raise the game with the podcast this year, uh, from the YouTube videos to the race day content on Patreon, where we record daily thoughts, news, views, opinions direct from the MotoGP circuits. And then, of course, with World Superbike, we managed to bring Charlie and Extra Gordo uh, to join Steve for those epic roundups. So it's been a, a big old show in 2022. Uh, thanks also to the likes of Fly Racing and Renthal, two brands that you'd associate with off-road riding and racing, but whom in fact have a large selection of products and parts for street bikes. Uh, we were able to put so much time and energy into the Paddock Pass podcast thanks to then. If anybody is listening and wants their brand to reach a very large and very informed audience for 2023 with plugs, promos and other content, then please DM us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod, just as our new website, until I should say, our new website is up and running. Um, and no focus on you there, Dave, no pressure. Uh, everyone else will be having some mince pies and mulled wine, but uh, you'll be there busy coding for us, I hope. Uh, fingers crossed. Anyway, I've talked enough, so let's tear right into this last show uh, with a few of our awards for 2022. Um, first of all, we have the Podcast Santa's Gift to MotoGP, where we can all bestow our generosity on the paddock for the year ahead. Uh, Dave, what will you unearth from your sack and for whom? Um, uh, at the bottom of Santa's sack, I have found a uh, halfway competitive uh, Honda because... Uh, it's pretty clear that the bike this year was uh, subpar. I mean, it started off very well. Uh, Paul Spargo, very enthusiastic about the bike. It's... Um uh, it's a pang. Also, it started off in Qatar with a podium, uh, but from there it all went downhill. We saw Mar Marquez get spat to the moon uh, in Indonesia. Um, the the bike was just. Um, I don't know what they tried to do. I mean, this we talked about this with Peter Bowman. Yeah, I really do recommend you go back and listen to it. But you know, they they tried to change the balance of the bike, and they ended up being halfway in between, sort of. Um, uh, it being neither fish nor flesh and uh, it was just not competitive we saw Mark Marquez come back we saw him finally get that fourth uh, surgery after the Mugello um, they derotated his uh, humerus the, the bone in his upper arm um, he came back that would, that surgery was a success he said he came back and he's feeling um, uh, fit again he's no longer in pain he's no longer in pain just in his sort of day to day life um, he was capable of riding again and we saw some really strong rides I mean his ride at Phillip Island was just uh, was a real sign of the old mark again um, and uh, we lost out on 
Valentina Rossi this year. Uh, so that was one massive hit in terms, you know, the the, the most the most famous motorcycle racing uh, racer in history uh, leaves the sport uh, and then at the same time you have you know the, the, the uh, probably the most talented motorcycle racer in history uh, also goes missing and a big and a big crowd draw and so it became uh, i think it had a major effect on the series um when Mark came back, he couldn't. He could only really succeed at a track like Phillip Island, where the bike doesn't matter as much. And so, having a bike that was better, um, that is, you know, good enough for Marquez to be competitive enough um, with better electronics. That I, I mean, I really want to see that because you really want to, to see where Fabio Quattararo stands, where Joan Mir stands, where Pecco Bagnaia stands, um, measured against you know the best. I mean, uh, MotoGP and Grand Prix racing really needs Honda as well, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't need the the largest motorcycle manufacturer in the world uh, losing interest, losing heart. Um, but it really does depend on how flexible they're going to be, Dave. Um, it was in Austria, of course, where Mark Marquez turned up um, basically to sort of throw the gauntlet um, at race management and say, we need to have a bit of a 360 think on the way we're doing stuff. Whether Marquez actually has enough clout to, to ring a bell at the highest levels in Japan is, is another matter. I guess we'll see in the coming months and, you know, what HRC can produce with the latest version of the RCV. But uh, yeah, being very, very generous there to HRC, Dave, I think they do need a helping hand. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean they they absolutely need a uh, need a helping hand. And if you think about what uh, Mark Marquez did at the end of the Valencia test, uh, where he did something like fifty laps, uh, where everyone else was doing eighty, ninety laps, um, he got on the bike, uh, rode around, told Honda what they needed to do, and then uh, spent another. I don't know, 20 minutes shouting at them, telling them this is not good enough and you have to be able to bring me something more competitive. So, uh, yeah, I don't think Honda and I don't think Yamaha are going to actually withdraw from the series because racing is too, too important to them. It's, it's too much part of their, um, of their DNA, but they really do need to change their approach to start taking more risks. Uh, in terms of development through the year and um, they just need to do a better job of of to catch up with uh, the likes of Ducati and Aprilia and KTM and obviously we saw Aprilia make a huge step forward as well now I know you have no qualms about scratching around with your sack uh, what will you uh, unveil for well as your Santa's gift for MotoGP in 2023 well, I don't quite bear a, a passing resemblance uh, to Santa Claus like Dave. Um, yeah, I'm going to <laughs> reach down into my sack and um, pull out, oh, what's this? Oh, okay, it's a, a ban on uh, ride height devices and uh, severe limitations on aerodynamics in MotoGP. Um, I've chosen this because, I mean, we've spoken about this, I think, at length um, across several pods this year. I think this was one of the year's big talking points and takeaways. Um I think the race in, in general this year was good, um, but I think it also was tempered slightly by the fact that it's probably more difficult now in MotoGP to overtake than it has been ever really, unless you're on a Ducati. The Ducati seems like a, a kind of foolproof overtaking bike in MotoGP. I mean, I was crunching some numbers after the season ended, and um, the racing this year was 
fast, like ridiculously fast. I think of the, the, the 17 relevant races that you can compare to previous years that we had in 2022, uh, 12 of them were faster than previous race records. Um, and not just faster by like, you know, a tenth of a second or half a second, like te- faster by 10 seconds in some cases. Um, I think Le Mans was 19 seconds under the... the um, the, the previous race record, uh, 18 seconds in Austin. So we're talking about huge amounts of, uh, of time here. And that's clearly because of the gains that we've had with um, ride height devices and, and aerodynamics obviously becoming more honed. Um, so it's, it's making the racing faster, but I don't think it's always necessarily making the racing better. And uh, we did see some races this year where there was kind of an alarming lack of overtaking and it did seem as though the show was very clearly and very obviously being affected by um you know these new devices that every bike has now in the class and um basically the kind of the added forces that they're putting on both the brakes and then of course the front tire which is absolutely at its limit and we're not going to have a new front tire motor gp until i think 2025 um so that means that this isn't going to potentially change uh, next year and probably not in 2024 either um so yeah while MotoGP now in terms of speed is is kind of you know it's almost as impressive as it's ever been um and while the the field is still very closely matched i think we saw three of the five closest top 10 finishes in history this year in MotoGP um there were certain occasions where we did see lots of bikes together on track but just not really able to um overtake one another and that was uh, a bit uh, a bit concerning i would say you know Jerez, le mans i think were were particular examples that stood out and we did have some good racing in the second half of the year for sure but um yeah i think in an ideal world you would want to take the right height devices off because they don't really add that much to the show aside from the obvious gains on the timesheet but now isn't the the rule book already too tight you know i mean dave what do you think the msma are going to say if there's further limitations on say aerodynamics and ride height devices i mean we're already seeing manufacturers having to scrounge around and attach four inch mini fins to the back of the 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 saddles just to achieve some kind of um incremental gains in performance yeah i mean obviously the bikes are very similar in performance um uh but there's really only one factory who wants all of these devices i mean uh the way that the rules are that uh they're set for five-year periods where we've really only just started the 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 the, the current five-year contract period which runs from 2022 to 2026 uh so we're stuck with um the rear ride high devices until then and the and the current aerodynamic rules um the only way they could change that is if there was a unanimous vote for uh, in the msma amongst the man amongst the manufacturers and that vote is always going to be uh well i mean it was 5-1 it's going to be 4-1 um because gas gas is just a ktm so they don't get a vote um uh and the one standout is ducati you know ducati want to use these devices so they're going to use these devices and ironically um the, the ducati actually uses the rear ride height device less um i was standing at the track side of valencia and it was really cold, uh, obvious out of turn 11 which is uh, the long uh, right hander before the, the sort of quick flick right and then you've got the long long left uh, of turn 13 um there's a short straight there and all of the 
bikes were using the rear ride high device except for the Ducati. So the Ducati has so much mechanical grip that it doesn't really need uh, the, the ride high device there. It works just really, 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 really well as a bike of its own accord. So, um, yeah, but the, that I'm afraid the ride high devices aren't going away. The aerodynamics are not going away. And we've seen a lot of the, the, the riders are actually in favor of it because it keeps the, the, the front wheel down. It makes it more stable. It makes the braking phase so going from it means that the, the front wheel is basically touching the ground um, even at sort of top speed and so it makes that that transition from acceleration to braking much safer uh, and it makes the bike more stable a limit some kind of restriction would be nice but I'm not sure that the expertise exists inside Dorna to actually um, you know understand and impose the correct level of restrictions on aerodynamics yeah i don't think it's unrealistic to say this is not the end of aerodynamics it's going to get even more complex and that'll be actually one of the interesting things to have a look at at the sepang test usually when factories wheel out new machinery it's hard to deduce exactly what is new because it's all undercover but with aerodynamics there's no escaping or you know what kind of concept or what sort of idea is this uh dave on motormatters.com i mean you went into the the dissection of this uh, what we saw in valencia superbly i thought you know with uh pretty uh you know, their, their ground force, whatever else they'll bring into their fairing constructions. It's all very small. It's all very minute, but it can be uh, decidedly effective. So I think, you know, that's something you have to keep an eye on. Neil, I think your chances of getting ride height devices or any other trickery band, you know, maybe are up there the same as Northern Ireland's chances of qualifying for a World Cup anytime soon. <laughs> Um, I just want to get that gag in there before we, you know, move on to anything connected with England. Um, job done. Thank you very much. Uh, can I just mention that my gift... And English uh, people wonder why no one else in the British Isles supports them when they're at a major <laughs> tournament. Just jealousy, that's all it is. That's why I remind myself. Um, if we're given gifts, then I would like to you know, be particularly generous towards Yamaha. Um, I would like them to get more speed, uh, eventually come back and have more bikes on the grid. Um, in 2023, they're down to two, of course, just the factory team. They'll lose their Dorna subsidy, uh, multi-million euro input there. And then, you know, I think there's going to be even more scrutiny on Fabio Quattroaro and his ability to develop a motorcycle. Uh, you know, there's the, the focus is going to be even more reduced um, on what the M1 is capable of and how both Quattroaro and Morbidelli, um, let's face it, had a massive uphill task in terms of trying to convert the M1 to something that was like a workable package this year, uh, you know, was was obvious. Um, I think, you know, one thing that was slightly worrying from the Valencia test was the slightly downcast comments or demeanor from from the Yamaha garage uh, it seems Dave you know what they tested in Mizano didn't actually quite turn out to be so positive in Spain so it's a slight worry um, and I hope you know Yamaha have better fortunes yeah, I mean, it was, but it was very odd because uh, every time this engine has been tested previously, people have been extremely positive about it. Uh, Cal Crutchlow tested it in Aragon and he was positive about it. And um, uh, Fabio Quattararo said, you know, he was quite enthusiastic about it, uh, about what he'd heard from Cal. Uh, also, Quattararo um, tested it at Misano and was very positive about it as well. Felt felt there was a, a real step in uh, speed. Um, Yamaha I've bought in this uh, toy uh, ex Toyota and Ferrari engineer. Uh, I want to say Marmolini, but I'm not entirely sure what his uh, what his name is. I'll, I'll have to check. But so he um, 
uh, he's been specifically tasked to find more, uh, more performance. Why they couldn't get the the, the speed at, at Valencia is just a mystery. They must have it must have been a misconfiguration, uh, something like that. Obviously, they haven't told us. Um, they haven't told anyone what the problem is, and we're really going to see the difference. Uh, after um, uh, after the winter break at Sepang, there we'll see the re- the, the real speed of the new bike. Um, we'll see, you know, how much better it is. Uh, where they found that that's when we're also expecting to see the first version of the uh, or something very close to the final version of the 2023 um, uh, bike you can't it's very difficult to develop engines uh, you know make significant steps uh, in the few weeks between the first and the second uh, test so we'll see but it was yeah it was just very strange that they didn't find that speed at Valencia on the subject, well, sticking with Yamaha and on the subject of the Rider of the Year. Uh, Neil, back to you. Well, uh, yes, I think that um, obviously the rider that I have chosen didn't win the championship. Um, but my Rider of the Year is Fabio Cotteraro. Um I know that there are a couple of arguments that could be made against this choice. Um, arguments such as the fact that he only won three victories, which isn't exactly a, a super convincing title defense. You could argue also that he was guilty of one of the biggest chokes in Premier Class history from such a position of strength. I mean, he was 91 points ahead of Pekka Banyaya, yet um, his performance in the second half of the season, looking at it purely in terms of results, uh, is not that impressive. Um, I think there were only uh, a handful of podiums in that time, two podiums in uh, the entire second half of the year, which could lead you to conclude that it was another one of uh, quarter hours meltdowns, the like of which we had previously seen in 2020. Um, But I kind of think if you just take stock of where he was at, where Yamaha was at, at the Sepang test and then the Indonesia test uh, in preseason, and when you understood that he was essentially going into the year with pretty much the same package that he had last year, um, at that point, there was no way we were saying that Quattaro was coming to the final round of the year with even any kind of chance of, of retaining his title. And I know there was that massive drop-off in performance and there was a couple of cracks in, in really key moments like at Assen when all the momentum was with him and he failed to make a count there. Um, also in Phillip Island where he made two pretty poor mistakes that was a poor race in a crunch crunch moment after the disappointment in Thailand he looked kind of resigned all weekend there um, but I think in general his performances were uh, awe-inspiring I mean I remember watching some of the races this year and being really seriously impressed by them and then obviously part of our job is to go out and speak to people after the race like other riders or technicians other journalists and colleagues and um, you know I think at places like Mugello or Austria just the general consensus was this kind of awe at what he had done in that particular occasion you know at Mugello when he was uh, going up against such a massive speed deficit on the main straight yet um, battled against four or five different Ducatis uh, to finish second um, Austria another place where he had no right, no right at all to be amongst all those Ducatis at the front of the field. I mean, what he was doing kind of reminded me of, you know, the, the feeling I was left with afterward, reminded me of, um, 
you know, the feeling I had after watching Marquez and his pomp or Jorge Lorenzo back in the day, back in 2013 or 2015, doing things where you think that that really probably shouldn't be possible with that bike. Um, so I know he ultimately came up short, but I think I think Fabio was the best rider this year. Um, and to do what he did with the kind of glaring mechanical deficiencies, um, I think is worthy of praise. And I think in some ways it's maybe one of the more glorious failures in kind of MotoGP recent history because he went on fighting like a complete champion right up until the final race. And, uh, you know, on occasion, it was absolutely awesome to watch. Yeah, I mean, props to Quattararo. Like you say, I mean, he was outnumbered. He was outgunned, um, sometimes outclassed. Uh, and, and Dave, you know, if there's, he carried this air of resignation right from the first Grand Prix. I, mean, I think he struggled to break into the top six or seven, um, you know, three times in the first four rounds. Uh, you know, that podium finish in Indonesia really just giving some sort of light or encouragement. But if you're aiming for a nine out of 10 performance, especially against that kind of competition for, from 20 weekends, it's inevitable that you're going to have a bit of a meltdown or your team is not going to function at that, that, that peak level of performance that's necessary to fight for a championship at some stage. But I also think in, in a way, the noises that Quartararo made at the beginning of the year and then sustained all the way through the season just took the pressure off him. I mean, he said, I'm going to do the best I can. You know, he kept making that gesture of uh, the knife being up against his throat. Um, you know, um, whatever the best was on that particular weekend was sufficient. You know, he wasn't sweating uh, a championship defense. I don't think that we've seen other riders in the past. I think for me, the whole thing is is is... Uh, a tale of errors. There's, you know, there's so many, there were so many mistakes made throughout the year by pretty much everyone. Um, uh, certainly by, well, by the manufacturers first, uh, by Yamaha, by, you know, not build, not building a bike that was fast enough, uh, by Ducati, by, you know, developing the bike almost into sort of halfway into the, the, the first couple of races. Um, uh, and there were a lot of rider errors, um, which for me, I mean, uh, Fabio was clearly riding above, you know, above the level of the bike. He was getting more out of the bike than that was in there. And if you talk to people in the paddock, almost everyone will say, <clears throat> there's a couple of riders who were really good. Uh, uh, or there's a couple of riders who are above the rest and, uh, they are Fabio Quartararo and Mark Marquez. Um, and yet I still think, for me, my rider of the year is is going to be Pekka Benyaya, uh, not just because not just because he won the championship, because of but because of two things. Two things he did. The first was to correct the mistakes that he was making. His first half of the season, he made so many mistakes. Yeah, I think he crashed uh, four times, and uh, I think three of those were his own fault. Um, it would have been really, really easy just to. I mean, it, especially the, the crash at the, the the crash at Saxon Ring. There was no reason for it at all. Um, it was just you know a lack of concentration. Uh, after Saxon Ring, he sat down, thought about what the problem was, and fixed it. And to me, um, that's a huge step to be able to actually. I mean, lots of riders can sit down and think about uh, or what their what their problems are, um, but to actually fix those problems, especially in the middle of the season, 
uh, is really, really impressive. And then if you look at the second half of the season, basically from Aston onwards, um, uh, he's never off the podium um, or he's off the podium twice. Once uh, uh, crashing out at um, uh, uh, crashing out at, at Mategi when he was trying to pass Fabio Quartararo. And then he had a miserable race at the end of um, uh, in, in the final race. Well, not a miserable race, but a very, very nervous race because he was, you know, he was trying to win a championship. And so it's forgivable that, uh, that he, he would have such a difficult race. And there was a couple of podiums that were handed to him. There was uh, Misano, which I think wasn't handed to him that much. You know, there was um, uh, an Bastianini right be right behind him. Uh, there, there was the there was the podium that was handed it to him at um, uh, Thailand, Joan Zarco. Uh, but again, Zarco wasn't going that much faster than Banyaya by the time he actually reached the back of uh, Banyaya. He'd, he'd had the best of his tie. He'd had the best of uh, the advantage. So, yeah, could he have passed him? Yeah, maybe. And so, you know, Banyaya would have finished fourth rather than third. Um, but still, to that kind of, that level of consistency is Marquez-esque. It really is that same level of um, just incredibly... Incredible concentration and incredible performance racing race out. No one else managed that. Even Fabio Quartararo in the first half of the season uh, was not was not that consistent. Yeah, I don't think we can all ignore the fact that you know Bagnaya pegged back a ninety one point deficit, Dave, um, and also he just arguably dealt with more pressure than any other rider in MotoGP this year. Uh, not in terms of expectations, but on the track itself. If you think of races like you know Sepang and also. Uh, Hareth, I mean, just two examples of where he had like intense pressure to deliver, and uh, you know, he did it. Yeah, every race that he won, uh, he was pretty much under the quash for the majority of it, with the exception of Assen, when Fabio and uh, Aleish, two guys that were probably faster than him, obviously had that incident early on. But every other one of his race victories, um, okay, maybe it was Quattararo trying to gaining him later on, like at Mugello or in Austria, but in places like Misano, as you mentioned, Ed, or um, earlier in the year at Hareth, I mean, he had someone breathing down his neck right up until the final turn, and um, he didn't blink, which I think, you know, is uh, yeah testament to a guy that when everything's going for him has the, the capacity to, to maintain his focus in, in ways that are, you know, just out of this world, really. Bear with me slightly on my rider of the year because um, when I looked at the championship standings and tried to get a bit of a summary, I just saw a lot of contenders or contenders, a lot of candidates really that had kind of dips or performance flaws. I mean, if we take somebody like um, Enea Bastianini, who would, you know, uh, was the most settled technical package on the grid, um, you know, produce wonders, uh, you know, especially with tire preservation and whatever else. Um, but then, you know, he would not finish the next race or would like produce a result where you think, well, what happened there? Um, which is kind of normal, I guess, for a relative rookie still in the class. Um, Alessia Spargaro, I mean, had his best season ever, I think, in the Premier class. Um, but then only taking 18 points from the last five rounds is something that, you know, leaves a little bit of a bitter taste in the mouth when you, you know, and come into a position where he was going to be fighting for the top three in the championships, ultimately not make that goal was a little disappointing. Brad Binder, a fantastic rider, made up the most of positions all the way through the season, but an Achilles heel with that qualification just meant he always had something to do. Um, you know, so Mike, when I look at this big list, uh, the name that stands out for me is Jack Miller. 
because although he's finished better in the championship, he was fifth this year compared to fourth. Um, you know, he posted the most points he's ever had in the class. The most podiums was seven. You know, he settled the bike by Catalonia. And since then, he just seemed a consistent package in terms of getting on race pace, getting the thing dialed, uh, which was one of his weaknesses in the past. Um, achieving that sort of consistent level of performance. Um, if it hadn't been for, say, Alex Marquez and that run-in in Australia, uh, he might have even have mounted a late bid for the championship or certainly for the top three. So um, uh, Miller, I think, just gets my gong for, for being right. Yeah, Dave, you're looking very uh, suspect of my choice. Uh, well, yes, because the uh, number two factory rider for Ducati uh, was beaten by the number uh, one Grassini rider on a year-old bike, um, who outperformed him by three points, you know, by thirty points. Um, you know, Anea Bastianini was objectively better than Jack Miller. So, I mean, Miller had a really strong season. He had some outstanding performances. He was excellent at, at Mategi. Genuinely, that was a really, really impressive race there. Um, but, you know, he only managed to, to, to beat Brad Binder, who was on a fairly shonky KTM by a single point. So uh, I um, I mean, you know, everyone loves Jack. Jack's great. Um, and really looking forward to seeing him, seeing him on the KTM because I think it's going to be interesting to see if they can, once they've, because they seem to have fixed some of the problems with that bike and it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. Um, but uh, yes, I think... Uh, um, I, I I'm starting to suspect it's a little bit of favoritism there, uh, Adam. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I, I outlined my criteria for the award, <laughs> and um, you know, the effort to try and be a little bit different. Then uh, there we go. Surprise of the year. Um, I'm going to go first this time. Um, and I have to admit, at one point, I was feeling particularly smug this year because in a podcast at the beginning of the season, I had Maverick Vinales down as to be one of the big surprises of 2022. And when we got to those Vinales circuits, uh, Assen, Silverstone, Mizano, uh, that was when he delivered three podiums in four rounds. So I was thinking, ah, you know, uh, I wasn't too far wide of the mark then. Um, as I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, Aprilia ultimately, oh, and Maverick didn't really deliver on some of that promise. Even though, Neil, I know you're smiling at me there on, on the Zoom call, but um, Maverick Vinales' debriefs were, you know, not quite as despairing as they, they usually are or they usually you know, tended to be in the last couple of years. Yeah, they were strangely upbeat for the majority of the year. Um, although I am looking at the championship table here, Maverick Vinales, 11th overall, um, two podiums from 20. I mean, it's not exactly a surprise. It's probably where we all thought he would end up at the, at the start of the year. Well, I did. I, I let you in prematurely because that was a small tangent. My my actual surprise for the year was uh, was Suzuki. Um, you know, for mainly the wrong reasons. Uh, you know, they won two Grand Prix. Um, you know, I think to four podium finishes. Alex Rins earning most of those. Uh, all of them, in fact. And I think just the Suzuki's decision to withdraw from the series by Hareth, I mean, we were all kind of working there. It, it was not a surprise. It was a shock. Uh, you know, they were midway through their contract. There was no inkling that the the factory was going to do it. You have to have some sort of sympathy for Livio Supo, actually, um, coming brand new into the, to the team and lasting all of uh, two months, really, before he knew he'd be looking for another job. So I think, you know, in terms of surprise, even though there are plenty of candidates, I think, in 2022, um, as we'll talk about right now. But for me, it was uh, the whole Suzuki affair. Uh, Dave, uh, who was it for you? 
Uh, well, I mean, first of all, just to come back to Suzuki, uh, the word shock is absolutely right because I remember sitting in the uh, in the media center and we were this story popped up about a quarter of an hour before the test was supposed to finish and we couldn't believe it and then Suzuki just disappeared no one would would say anything um they were shocked themselves because i think they found out uh, sort of before the uh, sort of before the end of the day as well um and it was just it, it was just utterly bizarre there's no real um it, it's also fairly clear that it's got nothing to do with, with their results on the track. It's got nothing to do with MotoGP. They're pulling out of EWC as well, the Endurance Championship. They haven't raced the World Superbikes for years. They haven't been in MXGP with a factory effort for uh, for a while. Um, but Dave, just to cut across you there, it's interesting to see Ken Roxon, arguably one of the most high pro, high pro highest profile riders in AMA Supercross, now riding a Suzuki. Uh, the motorcycle hasn't been that well developed in the last couple of years. I mean, it doesn't even have an electric starter on it. Uh, you know, maybe a moot point for, you know, a rider of Roxon's ability who is not going to be crashing that much and will need to lose time firing the thing back into life. But, you know, Suzuki is, it's, a, it's like a banner athlete. It's a, it's an emblem that they still are racing. But then, of course, we're talking about a regionalized effort rather than, say, a, a corporate policy. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a USA. This is Suzuki USA, and now they might have some support from the factory in the same way that the Suzuki team, the Cert team in endurance racing, will have some support from the factory. Uh, but it's not a it's not a factory backed effort. You know, it, it, it it's not a full uh, it's not a full factory effort. Uh, obviously, you know, the off road market is massively important for uh, in the US. Um, for all of the manufacturers, so it, it, it's no surprise that they would choose, especially choose someone of Ken Roxon's uh, profile uh, to race for them in, in in Supercross. You know, they they need that kind of visibility. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not the factory going racing; it's the, uh, the, the the as a manufacturer they've pulled out of racing and they're focusing much more on uh, the development, you know, on on the future uh, on their future as an automotive business. Um, they're focusing much more on you know, well, they're focusing focusing much more on on uh, even car production rather than rather than motorcycles. Uh, so yeah, they're just they're not really, um, yeah, they're not really looking at what they're doing now. They uh, they're not really looking at motorcycle racing uh, or any form of racing. They're they're looking towards their future as a manufacturer. I think it was also a surprise the way they handled it. I mean, it was a PR disaster. Uh, there was no kind of, I think, Suzuki or Japan were on a holiday period at that point. Um, and there was no explanation coming from the corporate voice as to the motivations behind the withdrawal. Um, obviously, it's costly. Uh, they had to pay Dorna a compensation fee for, for leaving the championship before the end of their contract. So it was um, something completely out of the blue, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, Dave, who, who was your surprise then? Uh, my surprise was Marco Bezzecchi, Um because he's he was a he was a very good Moto Two rider, but no more than a very good Moto Two rider. He couldn't win a championship. Um, he would win races and then he'd sort of fade the next uh, the next race. Um, and he came into Moto GP and he just immediately made an impact. He was I mean he was 
rookie of the year by a long, long way. Uh, now, obviously, the people he was up against, um, uh, the Moto2, uh, first and second of the Moto2 uh, championship last year, but they were on KTMs. You know, Ralph Fernandez and Remy Gardner were on KTMs and that bike turned uh, proved to be very difficult this year. It was very difficult to be competitive. Uh, Darren Binder moving up from Moto3, which was a massive, massive step. Um, uh, uh, but he also he was up against uh, Fabio Di Antonio, and you know Di Antonio sort of performs more or less as, as you might expect a rookie to do. But Bezecchi ended up with a um, uh, with a podium. He ended up with a pole. Um, he looked very strong. He you know he he, uh, he led the race in Thailand and looked. Looked like he might have been able to par, uh, to actually win it if um, uh, there hadn't been that incident at the uh, I think shortly after the start, which meant he had to drop a position. Um, yeah, it was. He really looks like the complete package. He really looked he, and to be that competitive in your first year in MotoGP. Uh, it is a sign that of of having something extra. He was on the Ducati. Uh, it's the best bike on the grid. The 2021, very well sorted. He didn't have much to test. Didn't have much to uh, uh, much to figure out. Uh, the the you know the, the team have all of Ducati's data, so it was it was quite easy to set it up. But still, uh, Bezecchi just was just exceptional. Now, what's your take on that? Because Bezecchi seemed like a, a very erratic rider in Moto3. I mean, a one, his last season there, we thought he might be fighting for the World Championship, but then he tended to find the gravel more times than not. Uh, in Moto2, of course, he was in the shadow very much of the Red Bull KTMIO riders in 2021. And then I guess you could say, as Dave pointed out, that coming into MotoGP for his first season, having the Desmos Adichie was a bit like riders having the Yamaha M1 in previous seasons. Uh, it was a riot, it was a, a motorcycle and a package that was settled, um, like Dave said, could benefit from uh, numerous data, experience, uh, getting the bike sorted to the majority of tracks that were on the calendar. I mean, riders like Cameron Bobier have commented on Bezecchi's talent, uh, the way he's able, been able to pick up the motorcycle, generate grip. Um, you know, he's obviously a, a young man who's maturing, is appreciated by the VR46 setup for, you know, the, the kind of calm and friendly character that he is. He seems to be very much a team player. Um, you know, you could compare him to say like Jorge Martin in terms of being not quite the spiky, sometimes abrasive character that you see in public. But um, just from like the, the reams and minutes of sessions you've seen in Moto Two, Moto Three, did you expect him to be a bit of a surprise? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I did have him down to be behind both uh, Fernandez and Gardner this year, though. To be fair, um, so yeah, I think he's he's been a surprise. I think he's been he had a, a super season, a really strong rookie campaign, um, but it is a case of. You know, we're not exactly sure where the line blurs between. You know, he's on such a such a good package, and um, you know the other rookies weren't necessarily on packages that had that kind of that kind of speed or potential. I know Dijan Antonio did, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure if Bezeki's a guy that we should be lauding as you know the, one of the future champions of MotoGP. I, I'm really not quite sure. I think he was fantastic this year, but how much of that was him and how much of that was just the, the, the kind of sordid nature of his package and the, 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 the strong nature of his package. I mean, his package finished third in the championship in the hands of Nea Bastianini. Um, I, I'm still unsure and I'm sure we'll obviously find out a bit more next year. 
Therefore, um, who, who was the rider or the team or the event that did uh, raise your eyebrow this year? Well, my surprise ad is, is sort of related to yours, um, continuing with the Suzuki theme. I mean, at the start of the season, preseason ended, I think everyone had Joanne Mir down as uh, at least the championship contender. Suzuki had made some big gains um, compared to last year where they port, sort of uh, stood still with development and they had made, you know, considerable gains with their with their engine, it seemed, um, you know, it, it kind of they refined some of that magic that carried Mir to the title in 2020. And, you know, in the first couple of races, he did look consistent without being spectacular. Um, but yeah, I know, obviously, what happened with Suzuki had a huge impact on both of its riders, and understandably so. You know, it can't have been easy in any way for both Mir and Rins to have continued racing when they didn't know what the futures held their team didn't know what their futures held. I mean, that is, that's not ideal circumstances to be going racing. And when the margins are so fine at the moment, like they currently are, even when something's just a little bit off, it is easy to, to see a big dip in performance. But just the, the kind of the, the drastic nature of Mir's falling away surprised me. Um, I mean, he finished 15th overall. Obviously, a large part of that is down to um, the nasty crash he had in Austria, which caused him to then miss, I think, four races. Um but, you know, Mir was just hands down beaten by Alex Rins this year. And, um, you know, I, I didn't have that down at the start of the year. I, I kind of had Mir in my own sort of mental approximation of the MotoGP grid. I had Mir as one of the top three guys, maybe top four guys on the grid. And, um, yeah, we just didn't really see it that often this year. Um, you know, Rins managed to make that comeback at the end of the year and showed that, you know, the Suzuki in certain situations still could be a really competitive package. Um, but yeah, I, I still think, you know, Mir, had he not had that uh, massive injury, um, then, you know, maybe we could have seen something similar from him at the end of the year. But yeah, he has to be one of my biggest surprises, just finishing 15th so far off. Also, uh, Aprilia. I mean, Aprilia is uh, arguably a bigger surprise than Mir, and that's going to be my surprise of 2022. The fact that they went to Sepang, the penultimate race of the year, and still had a decent shot of winning the MotoGP Riders World Championship, I think is just pretty remarkable, pretty stunning. Um, I know the year ended solemnly. I know it was a total disaster in Valencia. And, you know, they missed out on a couple of different things. Aleish missed out in third in the championship. I think Aprilia slipped from second to third in the Constructors' Championship, second to third in the Teams' Championship, um, or maybe it was third to fourth. Um, it was not, you know, a good end to the year. Um, but I still think if you if we step back, you know, a month now after the season is finished to look at what they accomplished overall, if you said to any of us at the start of the year that Aleish would have finished fourth overall in championship, would have won a race, would have scored two pole positions, I think, um, you know, a host of podiums and just a host of like really gutsy showings. Um, Maverick Vinales, you know, also scoring two podiums. It wasn't just one Aprilia rider being strong like we've seen since 2017. Um, yeah, I think that's the big surprise. Uh, yeah, I mean, like uh, Aprilia is, uh, what Aprilia have done is just been outstanding. It's just been, uh, it's just been exceptional. And uh, it's been a long, long road uh, to get here. I think they introduced their new engine for the start of the 2020 season. Um, and that basically, when they switched to the to the 90 degree v, uh, V4, um, it took them a long time to actually sort of uh, get it sorted out. And, and they finally seemed to have got it sorted out until the second half of the season 
season when they there were just too many uh, technical issues. Uh, there was too many problems inside the team. There was too many, you know, like basically avoidable problems. Problems which really shouldn't happen, or which which should you know look mistakes can always can always happen, but they seem to make them almost every uh, every week. Um, it, it sounds like there were problems with parts and all sorts of things towards the uh, towards the second half of the season. Um, certainly, the uh, both Aprilia riders were. Uh, Alesh was almost furious after the uh, Valencia test because he said basically they bought nothing. Uh, uh, you know, they brought nothing to test. And so it's going to be interesting to see what they do bring at, um, uh, at Sepang because they, they, Aprilia are really, really close, but they've still got work to do and they need to do it. I think it also says a lot that a satellite team is extremely enthusiastic about running two more SVs next year, Dave. Um, and also, as we saw in the Valencia test, the rider of the caliber of Miguel Oliveira is not going to be slow. So, yeah, I mean, good shout, Neil. Aprilia, definitely um, one of the surprises of 2022. Before we go on, a swift mention for the Paddock Pass podcast, Noel's Fantasy League. Uh, I can see my two colleagues rolling their eyes at this one. <laughs> um, just to prove that we don't know all that much, uh, I finished 49th from 342 players we had in the podcast league. Uh, where were you, Dave? Uh, I was fortunate in that um, I still managed to beat 74 out of the 340-odd people. So um, I was, I think, 274th. Um, I did actually put a little bit of effort into it. Unfortunately, too often I thought I realized uh, sort of after qualifying, oh, yeah, I should do something with my fantasy league. But I also put too much, um, uh, I think early on I put too much faith in, uh, I think I started... Uh, betting on Fabio Quartararo shortly just before he started crashing out, so um, that that proved not to be my best uh, my best decision. I, I, I definitely remember putting a lot of uh, putting all my faith in uh, into Fabio Quartararo just before Assen. So uh, yeah, there was there was just a few mistakes there. Um, it, I do find it very difficult to play that uh, fantasy thing just because you you. Choosing riders, you sort of like uh, because you're sort of like looking at the, the looking at the long game of the championship. But then it's much less about that. It's much more about you know sort of trying to get it right every race. So the the, the more you you effort you put in, the better you do. Uh, even though I think I uh, uh, ended up managed to get beaten by Neil Morrison, who did pretty much the opposite of my strategy. Yeah, I had the revolutionary tactic of um, not changing my lineup for about 14 or 15 races, I think. Um, the last time I changed it was maybe, what, Barcelona or Mugello? And then I just went with the same boys ever since then. That was definitely a very deliberate strategy on my part and not anything <laughs> down to laziness or uh, neglect. Uh, but yeah, I finished 177th. So um, yeah, 176 people uh, that listen to our show are certified have more knowledge than that. So, um, yeah, what does that say about my current position, my current standing amongst you guys? Neil, you've obviously been listening to too many former Liverpool FC managers in their time uh, when it comes to the book of excuses. Uh, so, yeah, uh, not, not the best effort, I have to be said. Or England managers. Very, very true. Moving swiftly on, um, our winner from, you know, the Paddock Pass podcast, Knowles, was uh, Hey MF from the USA. 
who ended the season with Quartararo, Martin, Bagnaya and Juan Mir in his four-rider lineup. Uh, Mike took an average of 105 points and was almost 100 ahead of Sufi Potok in second place and JP Racing 21 in third. So congratulations to those guys, especially Mike Falcone um, or Falcone. Apologies um, on the pronunciation there. Follow Mike on Hey Mike Falcon on Twitter, um, if we are still Twittering these days, uh, for any insight on how to select MotoGP riders. And um, we hope to be back with a contest in 2023. Uh, we'll be looking to get some prizes as well. Uh, we've got some friends over in Oakley. Maybe we might try and get some goods or some product to send to Mike um, for being the pick of the bunch in 2022. But we will be announcing details of our Fantasy League next year. Come and join us and see if you can show you have more know-all capability than we do. Um, on the subject of everybody winning, let's go on to the winners of the year. Very quickly for me, Italy. Uh, Ducati, Gigi Dalinga, Pecco Bagnaia, first world champion since 2009. Everything about Italy, even down to the fantastic aroma around the paddock of the food in the hospitalities, was an outright winner in MotoGP this year, apart from the fact that Mugello pretty much sucked. Um, you know, we all were worried at that point that Valentino Rossi and his departure was going to sell, well, kind of ring a little bit of a not a death now, but it was definitely an alarm bell for MotoGP. But um, yeah, the the, the boys uh, from the peninsula got the job done. So uh, for, fair play to Italy. They are my winner from the season. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, the, the fact that there was no one at Mugello, um, it was... Um, uh, it was there were people at Mugello there. Day, but not... not not the heydays. It's not. It wasn't. I mean, there was like no. 40 there odd. was what? The, yeah, the thirty-five, forty thousand, something like that, instead of seventy, eighty, ninety thousand. Uh, so it was down a lot. Um, uh, we were the winners from Magello because it meant uh, it meant it was really easy to actually find accommodation <laughs> there, which was great. Um, the I think Magello is really interesting because it shows that really what you have to do is. I mean, Magello was a race. You know, you went to Mugello and the the race was the event. Um, the races which did really well, which had really big attendances, you know, Lamar, Saxon Ring, Assen, uh, Red Bull Ring, um, uh, certainly Saxon Ring, Assen, uh, Lamar, the, the, the whole event is the event. You know, the, the race is just part of the event. And it shows that uh, for, you know, promoters, what they need, they need to put on, uh, a lot more than just a uh, just a race. Um, uh, I will follow you with my uh, winner, and that will. But, but I'm going to be a lot more precise. It's going to be Gigi Delinia because Gigi Delinia was hired in 2013 uh, to win a MotoGP championship. It took him a long time uh, because it took him a lot of work, um, and they tried lots and lots of things. You know, they they built a decent bike which was competitive, but they didn't quite have the rider. They Claudio Domenicali ran out of patience with uh, Jorge Lorenzo just as he turned good um, and uh, Andrea Dovicioso came very very close um, but the bike was just not quite there uh, when uh, to beat a Mark Marquez in his absolute prime um, and finally the bike now is it does everything you know it turns um it's interesting listening to luca marini saying you know like when you ask him what does the gk need to improve and he says well 
that thing is fine. Um, it will, you know, it will turn, it'll stop, it'll accelerate. Uh, the fact that Ducati using the, the, the ride high device less than other factories shows that it's getting more traction. It means that, you know, it's getting more mechanical traction. Uh, it's getting more traction from the bike. So there's definitely a lot going, um, it's a sign of just how good that bike was. Gigi Delinia put together a package to try and win the championship um, uh, simply by building the best motorcycle. And he he showed, you know, like if he was brought in to show the excellence of Italian engineering, he succeeded. And continuing with that theme, um, I'm going to select another Italian for the winner of the year. And uh, a bit of a left field choice, you could say, maybe, but I think Inea Bastianini was uh, certainly worthy of mention on this pod when we're summing up this year. I think he's only the second rider since 2005 uh, from an independent team to finish within the top three of the MotoGP World Championship, along with uh, Franco Morbidelli in 2020. Um, scored four victories, um, was an outsider for the championship up until, you know, the last two races. Um, and more than that, it was just his uh, his kind of dogged refusal to really pay any kind of attention to the greater good of the of the Ducati project um, in the final stages of the year, which really kind of won my affection and, and really, in my eyes, just made me think this guy's got that ruthless uh, bastard kind of edge that is needed to be an absolute top boy in MotoGP. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I don't think we can argue that he was the best rider this year, but he was certainly one of the guys that, you know, stirred things up, uh, made the, the kind of show more interesting. And, um, you know, I think in his second year in, in, in MotoGP showed that he could well be a, a champion of the future. You know, next year, that Ducati garage is just going to be a, an absolute tinderbox of activity. It's going to be fabulous, and I can't wait already. Yeah, I mean, it's quite clear that Bastianini is not going to uh, be the, the submissive second rider that uh, Jack Miller was for a lot of his time. Bastianini is going in there to win the championship, uh, and Bastianini doesn't really care. I mean, like he took, uh, he was uh, loyal to Ducati's interests just to the absolute minimum degree um you know to to the degree of not uh, uh, not risking taking someone out uh, or taking you know, taking Bagnaia out i mean we all remember the last corner at Misano uh, where he came very very close he was nearly close enough uh, to make a pass but he was just maybe i don't know 5 meters too far away to do, to be able to to guarantee that he would get through. But then we saw the next race at Aragon that, uh, you know, no, there was no love lost. It was straight in and um, uh, uh, trying to beat them. So he, you know, he fought with Banya and he beat Banya cleanly. So, yeah, uh, ha definitely hats off to, to Bastianini. And he, he's... It really is an interest. It's really going to be interesting seeing those two in the same um, factory next, in the same team next year. And also, it's the perfect Italian story. You know, two Italian riders on an on a Italian uh, motorbike, uh, capable of winning. Um, yeah, it's it, it's just it, it, it's like a it, it's Gigi Delinia's dream come true. Well, now 
wanting to rake up old ground, it still doesn't make any sense to me uh, why Bestinini would want to, you know, rebel against uh, future employers, uh, his future team, whatever else. But yeah, we'll put that one in the box. Go, go back and listen to the Aragon episode, yeah. And yeah, exactly. You got, listen, it's, you guys have it. Out. We don't need to. We don't need to go over old ground. No, I'm no, no. That's in. right. Be the mediator here. I'm going to step in. No, well, add. That, that's it. We're, we're moving on to the loser of the year now, okay. folks. No, Adam, no, no. We're, lo- loyalties we're, for actually, losers. Actually, no. We're, we're going to make a quick pause in the show at this point because um, we're going to go to a quick ad break. But before that, people might be wondering why we're talking about winners. But of course, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know we have a winner and loser section on the show. So it's only natural that we should pick a winner and a loser of the year. Before we get to the loser, like I said, we have this quick uh, interjection of the ad, but then also coming straight back, we're going to hear what Neil had to say with Pedro Acosta in a fantastic interview. Um, You know, we don't really, as we said at the top of the show, we don't hear too much from the Spaniards, still 18 years old, only two years in Grand Prix racing, already a world champion, uh, rookie of the year in Moto2 this year, five podiums, three wins, um, pretty much a force of nature. There's not many riders like him currently in the world championship. So uh, we'll be right back after this and then straight into Neil's interview and then we'll, we'll return with our last few um, bits of mudslinging of the year, if you like, as we're going to tackle loser of the year, biggest mistakes and some of our personal highlights. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. 2022 has certainly been uh, eventful, like a lot has happened. Um, how, how would you assess the year so far? Well, uh, finally, it's my second year here, and for sure it's the harder one, you know? Finally, new, cla- uh, new class, new tracks, uh, new situation. Finally, uh, I think the first part of the season, the first American tour, was difficult, no? But then we back to Europe, we start to do good races again, we start to do, to get the pace. It's true that maybe the injury from the femur slowed down us a, a bit, but then I think uh, since Austria that I back, we are doing good races for this. I think generally we have to be happy. Yeah. How is the leg now? It's not 100%, it's not 100%, but it's getting better, it's getting better. Finally, in Australia, I get my first crash uh, after the injury. This finally, when you see that you don't feel pain and you have a crash, I think get a little bit more confidence by yourself, you know? Yeah, sure. But I think um, after the second surgery that we have to have in, I hope, this winter to take out the pin, I think I'm going to, to uh, improve a little bit faster. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Has it been a big physical adjustment going from Moto3 to Moto2 in terms of strength, uh, physicality? Finally, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, finally, was more adapt yourself to the difficult side that we have this year, like uh, Indonesia, uh, Australia with the cold, here again in Malaysia with the with the hot. Finally, it's a little bit understand what you need for these races. Yeah, that's it, okay. Yeah. I read something about um, like a strategy you and your trainer have, like a shock therapy. He tries to maybe um, play with your training bikes and your engine. Sometimes so you're not always riding with the perfect conditions when you're training away from the track. Well, finally, I try to do, to do different things. You know, finally, from uh, beginning of the season, I see that I'm struggling a bit uh, in, in, in rain condition for this. I'm trying to all days that is raining in Murcia, I, I go to train. I go to train, don't change nothing the bike, don't... Finally, the important thing is to get the feeling, you know? For this, I think we have to do something different, you know, every day, because if not, finally, when it's always a, a routine, finally, it's difficult to, to be focused. Uh, all time, but uh, I think uh, we are doing good job. Yeah. 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 Good job. Nice. Okay. So uh, I also read that you always like to be training with people you feel are at a higher level than you. With uh, finally, it's not. Finally, we are in the World Championship, and it's difficult to see people more prepared than us, you know, in the world. But finally, training with uh, small bikes, with uh, small guys, finally with, with Charles, is our guys that want uh, to beat you, our guys that don't have this respect that, for example, I can have with Remy when we go training. Because finally, when you are more old, you understand what a guy like, for example, Remy, are fighting for. Finally, a child with nine, ten years don't understand these things. And for this, I like to, to go with, with this child because finally you learn more from these guys than if I go to train alone or, or something because they lose this respect to you and finally you fight like here. Uh, okay. What's been the biggest change from Model 3 to Model 2? The thing you had to get accustomed to the most? I think uh, you have to un <coughs> to understand all the time what you are doing, what you are doing. Because finally, in Moto3, to be honest, I don't have problem to start 25 because I know that I was going to arrive to the to the um, uh, leading group. The problem here, you you start the race in eighth and you lose two or three laps to overtake the guys and to take the pace again for this you have to to understand the, the, the electronic a bit then the tire manage is try to be maybe more um, how to say more consciousness what about what you are doing yeah okay um about the start of the season you yeah. had those two fantastic tests at Jerez at Portimao where you broke the lab record you came to Qatar, people thought you were the favorite to win the championship, but maybe the first few races were a little difficult. Can you yeah. talk about that time? Was that a, was that a, a typical time for you in your, in your Finally, I, I trained all the winter to, to, um, 
to to the European tracks. You know, I I don't think that the I don't thought that the first part of the season was going to be harder at was. Yeah. But I think finally we arrived to Qatar and finally I was fast because I think I was P2 in the FP FP overall. You know. But then, yeah, I arrived to the um, to the quali. I crash again. Finally, maybe you lose a little bit the confidence. Yeah. Then in the race, I started P10, I think, and some guy hit me and I go out, and I was the last in the first corner. Finally, are things that take out you a little bit of, of confidence. You know, it's like I I talked with Remy in the beginning of the season. I stop crashing because if not, you are going to arrive one day that you are not going to understand why you are crashing. Because I remember Qatar, I have two crashes, Indonesia too, Argentina, America, then I arrived to Jerez and I crashed too, yeah. then uh, Le Mans. was finally five or seven or six weekends that I crashed two times every, every, every weekend, you know? And maybe I understand that we have to know when it's time to push or try to manage when it's time to do something. Yeah, absolutely. I remember uh, you said in the first part of the season you wanted to ride the bike in one way, but the team wanted you to ride in another way, the way that they thought you should ride. Did you find a, a kind of a, a way in the middle somewhere? Yeah, I think uh, that's, that's what the key, you know, because finally I was thinking in one way, the team was thinking another way, and maybe we lose the correct way, you know, in the beginning of the season. But then, finally, when you talk with the people, finally, you, you take a middle point, you know? Right. Finally, I understand that I have to try the things that the team say to me to can improve. And I think the team understand that they have to give me other things that I needed to go fast, you know? Finally, it's 50-50. Try to... I have to try to uh, adjust a bit my style to the Moto2 and they have to adjust maybe a little, a, a little bit the Moto2 to me. Yeah, yeah. And now, I mean, do you feel that the Moto2 is it's your bike? You feel completely comfortable? Well, is finally, since uh, my victory in Mugello, we see that since Le Mans, I was fast. Finally, I think we broke the records in Le Mans. Okay, I crashed, but I was leading a race. I was pushing. It's a crash that you understand, you know? Then we arrived to Mugello and we was fast all the weekend. Uh, finally, the victory was not the important thing, you know? But we take it. Uh, then Barcelona was hard weekend for us because normally in this track I always struggle. But we know how to manage to finish in top six. Yeah. Finally, it's always a stepping up, you know? Then Saxony will take a podium. It's true that then Asen and uh, Silverstone we don't ride, but then we back to Australia, uh, Austria with P4, P6 in uh, Misano, then P1 in uh, Aragon. In Aragon, then was a little bit tricky. The first races in the overseas uh, about weather condition and everything, but P6 again in Motegi, then it's true that with the rain in Thailand we struggle a lot, a lot, a lot, and we cannot take point. But finally, we are taking the way that we are finishing races and we are always improving a bit. Yeah, absolutely. 
without the motocross crash and breaking your leg, do you think you would be fighting for the title right now? Finally, be, before summer break, I say, okay, being the guy that takes more points in the second part of the season, I'm going to be happy because finally was difficult because I think I was 90 points behind, yeah. close to 200. Now, yesterday I was checking and I was the third rider that I take more points since Austria, you know, and finally I have to be happy, I think. Finally, with eight zeros, we are, we are fifth in the championship. Uh, maybe without these two races, we take no more points, more experience, because it's the thing that we need. Yeah. But anyway, we cannot change the past, you know. Finally, we have to, to take the, the mistake that we, we, we do and improve for the next season. Okay. Uh, just a few more questions. Um, how do you, last year it was clear what you did in Model 3, it was like a sensation, television journalists were always talking about you. How do you stay focused on riding, getting results whenever you have all of this uh, distraction array? Finally, I think you cannot, you don't have to believe it, what the TV say about you. Right. Finally, no more in in the in MotoGP, but more in Spanish uh, newspaper or in Spanish news. Finally, I'm not going to look for a middle point, you know, because finally it's difficult for everybody, you know, but or are going to say that you are like God <laughs> or are going to say that you are like, like, uh, how to say, uh, Evil? No. Yeah, evil. yeah, you know, it's this point, and you cannot change this. For this, I think you cannot, or you don't have to believe what the people say, because yeah. finally, you know who you are, you know uh, what you have to do to to, 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 to to yourself, you know, and and I think this is the more important. Finally, uh, in this time, everybody talk about Pedro Costa, you know, and then this year, when I start to do good results, nobody was talking, you know? For this, you start to understand that the media are going to say the better for the media, not for you, you know? For they, when you understand this, everything are going to be easier. Yeah, yeah. And that must have been strange going from the end of last year, everyone talking about you to the start of this year, maybe a different reaction? I think it was uh, important to have this, uh, this step back, you know? I think finally, was one time that taking out the Mark injury, all Spain was talking like me. It was like Fernando Alonso when, uh, when he win the F1 World Championship, you know? For this, I think it was important to have this moment to step back yeah. Yeah. and realize a bit what was last year for me. And then, um, and then it's better that was before that I go to MotoGP because finally, if you don't have this difficult moment, maybe you don't enjoy the good ones. For this, I think we cannot change nothing, you know? For this, I, I think it was important to have it. Yeah. Um, a lot of young riders in Moto3 these days, Moto2, you see them always with their phone on Instagram, 
Aki told me that uh, you're not really interested in this kind of stuff. Uh, this is just a distraction for you? It's not a distraction. Finally, I don't really like it. For this that we were talking, no? Uh, yeah. Finally, the media are always to put you in to, um, in the highest point or in the lowest one. For this, I prefer don't, to don't think too much. You know, finally, I understand that this, uh, it's like, uh, like switch, no? When you are young, you start to, the people start to follow you. But finally, I don't know how, how, how many followers I have, but I think I only have four or five person that are in my close uh, group, you know, for this. Yeah. Are really the important person that you have, because finally, every day this is more like football, you know? Finally, the people are only focusing on rider and not to enjoy the races, you know? Yeah. For this, yeah. I think, we have, or the guys here, have to understand that the important thing is watch the people around you think, not watch the media thing. Okay. Just one last question, Pedro. Um, I think you said last year one factory, one team wanted to bring you straight to MotoGP without going to Moto2. I mean, you must be thinking perhaps 2023 is a good season, then you will maybe uh, step up after that. I mean, is that how you're, you're looking at your progression? Finally, the target is is to to keep this way in 2023. Finally, we are always in top six. Finally, we are doing good races, but we have to improve a bit. Um, I think was not the moment to go to MotoGP in 2022. I think it's not the moment to go to MotoGP in 2023. Maybe in 2024 is the moment, but first we have to be 100% competitive, like Remy was last year. Uh, to can't say, okay, now I'm ready. Because, like I say a lot of times, okay, it's sweet, go to MotoGP in a factory team, uh, two years contract, everything. It's too sweet, it's true. More when you are young, when your dream is to go there, but <clears throat> I think it's not the way if you are not going to, to fight, you know? Because finally, you can be, uh, you can win a Moto3 World Championship, you can win a Moto2 World Championship, but finally the, ta the true target or the real target is to go prepare to fight in MotoGP. If you no, are not prepared, it's not necessary to go. Yeah, and you feel a sense of um, loyalty? Uh, to At the KTM? moment, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> a sense of like loyalty to KTM, like obviously, Finally, they bring me here when I don't have team. Yeah. Uh, last year I have two years contract in Moto3. They broke the contract and up me to Moto2. Yeah. Finally, are the people that give me everything that they have to me. Uh, for this, I believe in uh, that Kadim are going to, to do a step up. Yeah. I believe it. Perfect. No worries, Pedro. Okay. Appreciate Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Great to hear there from Pedro Acosta. Thanks, Neil, for getting that done. That was at Sepang, wasn't it? When you spoke to Pedro? It was Thursday at Sepang, yes. We were all still a bit uh, bleary-eyed after uh, the long flight from Australia. But uh, yeah, done in the morning time. He was still uh, fresh enough to offer that insight. So yeah, it was, uh, it was good to hear from him.
a particularly sweaty interview then <laughs> of course i mean any interview with me I'd, as you well know is a sweaty interview <laughs> especially in malaysia guys um, yes. our, our last few awards of the year uh loser uh, let's get straight into it. Um, a couple of perhaps obvious targets for this one. My shout is going to be Remy Gardner. Um, I think if you had said to the 2021 Moto2 World Champion, you're only going to score points in six races. You're going to finish behind your teammate that you managed to defeat the previous season. Um, you would take on a new manager who clearly had your best interests at heart because um, Paco Sanchez's comments on rider contracts was entirely valid, if perhaps a little ill-timed. Um, and certainly not within the political game plane that you need to have in MotoGP to protect your client. Um, you know, I think he would have been pretty shocked. Um, by mid-season, Remy looked over it. He looked slightly demotivated. Uh, you know, his rider debriefs was sometimes a real struggle, uh, both for him and for us. Um, he was like a living, breathing, walking example of how fleeting the highs of motorsport or any sport could be. Um, you go from being world champion one month to, you know, really scraping the bottom of the barrel and, and trying to find uh, some kind of momentum a few months later. So it was a real shame. I mean, I don't almost want to label him loser of the year, but I don't think um, 2022 went anything like the Australian because it could have envisaged and, and, you know, he's not even going to be in the MotoGP paddock for next year. I would only disagree in the fact that I think it was Raul Fernandez because Raul Fernandez was the anointed golden child of KTM and he sucked. Um, he was just absolutely <laughs> terrible. Um, uh, in fact, I think he even got beaten by uh, by Remy. If I, yes, he got beaten by Remy. Um, so no, he didn't. oh no, he didn't. No, he didn't. He, he ended up one he point beat, more. He scored one point. Yes, exactly. Um, it it was. I mean. It's starting to look like KTM's uh, sort of fast track youth program is a bit of a meat grinder uh, where you come in and get spat out very quickly. And I think that would give uh, Pedro Acosta pause for thought. Um, but, you know, Fernandez was exceptional in Moto3. He was exceptional in Moto2. Uh, and he was completely forgettable in MotoGP. Now, the bike was a problem. The bike was just not competitive. But if you look at what both uh, Oliveira and especially Brad Binder were capable of doing, um, then it's clear that there was the, the points were there were points to be had. So um, no one is looking at. I mean, like Remy Gardner was a very good Moto Two rider, and when he came up to Moto GP, we thought he would be, you know, so he would be, you know, perfectly fine, competitive, capable of putting in good results. Uh, I don't think anyone was expecting him to be a future world champion, um, apart from Remy Gardner, of course, which is exactly what he should think. But Ra Raul Fernandez, everyone was talking about Fernandez. Is okay, he, he, you know, how long is it going to take him to start fighting for the championship? And right now, uh, Raul Fernandez, the, the answer to that question looks like being, well, you know, never, because he's just not good enough. Well, I'm going to go with the uh, non-KTM option chaps and I'll say <laughs> uh, Franco Morbidelli was my loser of the year. I mean, I mentioned this, I think, in, in one of my previous answers. You know, he was... Uh, prior to this year, the only guy on a satellite bike to finish top three in the championship since 2005. Um, and yet there was just absolutely no evidence of that rider really ever being on the grid this year. I think Sepang was maybe one of the only occasions where we sort of had an inkling that Franco was mustering up something where it looked like his kind of previous form. But even that was a messy race uh, littered with, um, or a messy weekend littered with uh, 
um, penalties and incidents and things like that. I mean, he was 17 places back of his teammate Fabio Quartararo in the championship. He was 260 po- 206 points less better off, uh, worse off, I should say, sorry, than uh, Fabio Quartararo. I mean, that is that is huge. And um, yeah, I think most worrying of all was just the general feeling of there's not really any progress being made here. Occasionally, there would be a little flash and you would think, okay, but it was not sustained. And um, two top 10 finishes from the year is uh, is a pretty miserable return uh, for a factory Yamaha rider when your teammate is fighting for the championship and when two years ago you were fighting for the championship. Um, and it wasn't just that. I mean, I think Franco was probably the most penalized rider of everyone in MotoGP this year. There were just several occasions where he didn't seem completely switched on on the bike you know, like that instance in Malaysia, for example, when he held up, I think it was Marquez and Banyaya at the end of FP3 and got in their way and then basically um, copped a penalty for that. And there was just a few occasions. There was one race where he, I think it was at Assen, he went into the race knowing he had to serve a long lap penalty and then didn't serve it in the first five laps. And it was like, Franco, what are you doing? Then he got, <laughs> you know, another long lap penalty for ignoring the first long lap penalty. And it was a few occasions where you just thought this guy doesn't seem completely switched on. Um, I do hope that it's temporary and that we see a return of the real Franco Modelli because we know he's a quality rider. And when he's on form, he's a quality person to speak to as well. Um, but it was it was tough this year to see him looking just average on track. And obviously, that didn't lend itself to the kind of colorful, talkative character we know Franco can be off the track. And I know some, some of his debriefs were, 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 were too challenging for even you gentlemen to uh, want to come to. <laughs> I, I think we need a new category, Enigma of the Year, because that was uh, that was very much what he was. Uh, I mean, you know, clearly he's fast, but yeah, just like absolute mystery what was going on inside that little head of his. Yeah, but props also to Cal Crutchlow for trying to summarise the situation with Morbidelli because he was explaining that the M1 needed a far more aggressive riding style. And I think this was pretty damning for Franco because he didn't quite have the flexibility uh, to, to adjust and to make the M1 work quite like Quattararo was doing or did, uh, you know, I think it's going to take it. If you had to ride that motorcycle, at Dave's favorite, 110%, then I think, you know, that was probably asking too much of Morbidelli, who, you know, could not reach, you couldn't reach that level anyway. Um, it was uh, too much to ask. I think, uh you know, if there's no radical reshape in that chassis for for 2023, then, you know, he's going to be in, in big trouble. Yeah, if you compare his race pace to his qualifying pace, you know, race pace, what you're trying to be is smooth and uh, smooth and consistent. Uh, and his race pace was usually pretty good. You know, he was usually well inside the top 10. Uh, and you look at his qualifying and it was just dismal. And that was where he was losing every single time. Race of the year, guys. I think we're all pretty unanimous on this one. Uh, Philip Island. You know, is there any kind of adjectives we want to throw at this one? Because uh, it was close. It was unpredictable. Um, Alex Rins, absolutely outstanding. Um, you know, it was infused with wildlife, uh, you know, all, all sorts of little dramas going on. Um, you know, the, you had the home uh, Miller coming in probably as the most vaunted Australian chance of success since Casey Stoner. Um, you know, it had a little bit of everything, didn't it? Uh, you know, is there any kind of more comments or is there any reasons why Philippi Island stuck out for you as, as the Grand Prix of the year? 
Oh, it's just a lovely place, you know. It's just a, it's, it's a lovely. Uh, the scenery is great. I mean, I never, I've never been, um, and I'm probably never going to go because it's too far away, um, and I don't want to get killed by uh, any of the million different kinds of wildlife which are out there to uh, to murder you. Um, but uh, it is, it's just, it's just a magical place. It's, it's, you know, and it always, always serves up great, great racing, and it's, it's natural. You know, it, it's, it sits naturally inside the uh, inside the landscape like Mugello, uh like Aston like the, the like this like all the places which produce great racing Dave have you actually watched the Phillip Island races back yet because I know that uh, you weren't really oh, ever yeah. going to make those live those live broadcast times Oh yeah, no, 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 no. I, uh, no, I, I, I. Do you know what? I think I might even have got up in time just to watch the uh, the, the MotoGP race. But no, I am not going to get up for uh, Moto Three at um, uh, at Philip Island. I did actually. What I think I watched both the Moto Three and the Moto Two race. No, it was all it was all good. Can I make an honourable mention for the Grand Prix of Indonesia as well? Um, Dave, you and I were working that race remotely. Neil, you were in the cauldron of of everything that was going on. Um, I just. It stuck out in my mind just for basically being bonkers. I mean, the weather was insane. Uh, the track was melting and falling to bits. Uh, Mark Marquez had a crash, I think, that made all of us, you know, drop our jaws. Um, Mitch Lynn and HRC, that, that relationship was already pretty volatile from the outings around Lombok. Um, you know, Miguel Oliveira rushing to victory on a track that, I mean, the, the lean angles themselves, the bikes were achieving with a grip from from Mandalika circuit was was insane um brad binder had finished second in qatar and then Oliveira winning round two i mean ktm was suddenly flying on top um at the flyaway races which was something completely unexpected and you know a, a shaman you know kind of walking down pit lane uh, all sorts of i don't know it was just confusion chaos everything that was uh, going mad so um and uh, neil did you, you got say, very wet did you say job uh, drop uh, our jaws or drop our drawers because I think both <laughs> would probably be applicable that weekend <laughs> such was the, such was the like, madness on show and also yeah. uh, however wet they were Neil yeah, it, uh, it was just yeah. Uh, perhaps we should have a most bizarre um, uh, or a most eventful race of the season, and then yeah, definitely Indonesia would be up there. Uh, I enjoyed Aston. I always enjoy Aston, but um, just there were lots and lots of surprises there. Um, yeah, close race, exactly exactly what you want, and uh, with lots of added excitement. Yeah, I think you know. Uh, you have to say Phillip Island, hands down, was the race of the season. There can really be no contest in that. For the reasons you mentioned, Dad, it was just, it was glorious entertainment pretty much from the first lap to the last uh, with what I think it was the whole field basically fighting at the start and that was eventually well down to 10 bikes, then to seven and, you know, you could have said in the final two laps, any of those seven could still have won the race. Um, so that was fabulous. But I think um, as a kind of notable Another notable mention would have to be Sepang. Just the the kind of the weekend at, at Sepang that we had was was fabulous. I thought um, it looked like our three championship contenders on Saturday evening were all going to let stress and pressure get the better of them. We didn't see either Banyaya, Quadraro, or Spargo look in any way convincing whatsoever on the Saturday. They all had pretty crap qualifiers, yet um, what Banyaya did in the race, what Quattrao did in the race were really, really special. And uh, we had that fabulous battle with um, Bastianini and Banyaya up front and also the added bonus of seeing 
the absolute mayhem that was the Ducati garage that weekend of just uh, stress and pressure <laughs> and all sorts of anxiety. Um, so yeah, I thought that was that was great entertainment as well. And Carlo Pranat actually had the uh, the temerity to shout back at Paolo Giabatti when he was getting the dressing done afterwards, which I thought was one of my moments of the season too. <laughs> well, listen, that race also, uh, you know, when it comes to the biggest mistake of 2022, Neil, stay on the mic. Um, you know, Sepang uh, had a clear winner from all of the Grand Prix this year and all of the moments, all of the action. Uh, Ayagura, I mean, he must still be kind of having nightmares about that race. Yes, that will be something I'm pretty sure Ayagura will be thinking about more than one occasion over the uh, the winter months. Uh, in preparation for 2023, um, yeah, I mean it was the, it was it was there for him. It was the the chance of a lifetime, really. Um, and he didn't need to make that mistake, did he? Going into turn nine on the final lap, uh, trying to overtake Tony Arbolino. Um, first of all, I think he had underestimated just how much Arbolino was willing to push for victory that day. Um, but uh, yeah, also I think. Uh, Agura kind of underestimated his own ability at Valencia. He thought he had to build up as big a lead as possible with one race to go at Sepang because he, he thought he sucked at Valencia and he was quite worried about that. As it turned out, when he got to Valencia, he was actually pretty competitive and um, you know was fighting at the front of that race um, in the early stages uh, before he made a mistake and crashed out. Um, so yeah, as it, as it stood, he didn't actually need to he didn't need those five points, but we could have told you that at the time. Yeah, one of the, the more obvious uh, blunders in, in living memory and, and just, yeah, I still can't believe that he did that. I still think he did the right thing um, for all of the reasons he just uh, you just iterated. You know, you have to try. I mean, the, the pass wasn't there. Um, I know I'm wrong about this, by the way, because everyone keeps on telling me I'm wrong about it. Uh, but I, uh, I, I, I think he did the right thing in trying to get the the extra five points. Um, I'm going to go with another Japanese rider, uh, Takanakagami, Barcelona, Turn One, uh, trying to win the race from uh, at the first corner. It just braked way too late. Um, ended up uh, uh, taking out uh, Alex Rins, breaking his wrist, um, smacking his uh, head against the back of uh, Pekka Banyaya's bike, um, and uh, basically ruining uh, Banyaya's race. Um, it was it was it was about as boneheaded. <laughs> as you could possibly as it could possibly be because there was no reason for it like Ayagura's mistake was was an uh, uh, an honestly wrong calculation of risk whereas this was just you know what I'm going to try not breaking into turn one you got sucked into the slipstream div yeah although sorry so yes sucked into the wake he got of sucked, back. yeah obviously yes, completely was, blameless uh, Dave completely <laughs> blameless blame the arrow div yeah, yeah, it's Gigi's yeah. Fault. yeah. Yeah, you're mine of the year. Blame him. <laughs> Neil, you actually gave Fabio Quattararo a rider of the year, but then you also had, you know, the Frenchman down as one of, carrying one of the big blunders also. I mean, just before we sort of throw, well, before I threw Ayagura at you, I mean, you also thought that Quattararo made a bit of a, a hash as well during the year. Well, well, I didn't say Fabio did. I think his team made uh, a bit of a blunder. 
um, in terms of calculating the front tire pressure in Thailand. I mean, that was the critical moment, I think, off the off the title race, the, the race that sort of swung it. Um, we know that Fabio had a desperate performance in the rain. The guys had a really difficult job, to be fair to them. Um, I mean, we had a, a rain charge just before, I think, the Moto2 race, and then it intensified dramatically. Um, MotoGP had had no, dry, uh, sorry, no wet running prior to the race. No setup time whatsoever, so it was it was basically just guesswork. Um, however, it seemed that Yamaha got their guesswork uh, completely wrong, especially compared to the other guys. And, and Fabio had his most listless performance of the year. He was what seventeenth at the end of that race, stormed out of the track without speaking to anyone, including his team, including uh, including us. And um, yeah, Panyaya said after we won the title in Valencia that that was the. Coming away from Thailand, he was like, "Yeah, this is this is ours. We we we've kind of got this." I think. Um, so yeah, I think that kind of miscalculation of uh, getting the front temperature, front uh, tire pressure in uh, the rain in Thailand was was one of the big blunders of the year for sure. For so Yamaha. just to, so just to vindicate your choice of Quasarara for Rider of the Year, you're absolving him of all blame for that incident in Thailand. Hundred <laughs> percent. Not his fault. You could even see in the uh, the end of season video that um, that Dorna did at Valencia. I don't know if you saw this, the behind the scenes thing where Fabio comes in and uh, he's speaking with uh, Diego Diogo Gubellini, his crew chief, and um, you know they're kind of talking, and he's like, "Look, you made some mistakes. I know I made mistakes." And it seemed to me in that moment that he was kind of taking responsibility for for that race in Thailand. Um, but well, maybe that was just me reading something into it that wasn't there. Two more awards to go. The best overtaker 2022. Um, but I've, I'm going to admit I've been particularly pathetic on this one because there's nothing really that stands out to me. Actually, I didn't cite my biggest mistake. So going back to that, apologies. I'm going to say Jorge Martin because between Portugal, Spain and France, the guy registered three DNFs at a crucial time where the biggest narrative in MotoGP seemed to be who is going to be uh, Pekka Bagnai's teammate in 2023 uh, and there was a bit of momentum around whether it's going to be Bastianini after his early season success or it was going to be Martin. Martin as well I'm not sure whether I should admire this trait or think it's actually a bit boneheaded to use Dave's phrase but to also be a bit gobby in the media um, <laughs> about his prospects for, for you know being kind of more valued by Jack Ducati um, you know he he just did. He dropped the ball at a crucial time, I think, when Ducati bosses were looking, thinking, you know, who should we have as the number two in the factory team? So, I think that was um, a particularly pressurised moment for the Spaniard, and uh, he didn't really deliver. But onto the overtaking moment, as I mentioned, um, uh, just from watching too many motocross races and MotoGP races this season, I'm just going to default to the uh, the FIM award. I think it was Alessio Spargaro who won that one in the end, wasn't it, for his manoeuvre at Assen? But uh, uh, back to you, Neil. I mean, what was um, I know that your choice for overtaking move of the year is also one that was um, something I think we were both watching live uh, in Malaysia and, and couldn't quite believe it was um, for, for what it achieved and for what, you know, it, it kind of at the time for what he did and what it achieved, it was particularly memorable. Yeah, I'll take your Alicia Spargaro move at Assen and raise it to John McPhee's move at Sepang. I mean, Alicia Spargaro passed only two bikes in one corner. <laughs> this was four bikes in one corner, Ed. So uh, I think uh, I have the clear upper hand in this uh, category. Um, yeah, McPhee's last lap, um, four and one uh, at uh, what turn 14, I think it is, at uh, Sepang there. 
to go from fifth to first in just one of the more unlikely victories of uh, of the year and just the kind of story of that weekend as well where he just basically looked like he was about to walk away from the team on Saturday. So fed up was he of um, the kind of continued struggles he was having in that box and to then produce a performance like that won by a move of that calibre I thought was uh, was brilliant. I will uh, see your John McPhee and, uh, uh, and, and call you uh, because I agree with the FIM. It was the, that, that move by Alesh Espargaro coming on top of that entire ride um, after being taken out by uh, Fabio Quartararo at the start to be able to take, uh, you know, two riders going into the, going into that final corner. Um, again, Aston's a great track precisely for that reason. That, the, that chicane is perfectly placed for just magnificent action. Um, uh, to do that on a MotoGP bike, a much heavier, much more powerful bike, traveling at much greater speeds um, uh, than a Moto3 bike. As, as fantastic as McPhee's pass was, uh, I have to give it to Alicia Spargaro because it was just... Um, there was no hesitation. It was perfectly timed. He got underneath everyone um, without uh, having to get physical with them. You know, it, it wasn't. It was extremely aggressive, but it wasn't uh, dangerous. You know, it wasn't trying to take anyone out. Um, I just thought it was exceptional. I think Brad Binder said it best afterwards. Maybe it was you, Dave, asked whether the move was on a, on the limits. Brad was obviously one of the guys that was overtaken there, and he said, "To be honest, Bud." Fucking hats off to the guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, even you know, for even Brad to kind of um, yeah, uh, J- uh, Jack Miller was the only person who was a bit annoyed by uh, uh, by it. He felt he got uh, stood up a bit because he did get stood up a bit, but then you know he got stood up um, uh, perfectly. I mean, he got perfect stood up perfectly legally. Um, so yeah, it was legitimate, and it was exactly what you want to see in a motorbike race. Well, guys, those were our choices for 2022. If you want to disagree or agree with us or send us a comment, then, of course, just send us a message on Twitter at PaddockPassPod. Our last little reminiscence of 2002 coming now, our personal highlights of the season. Me first. Um, for me, it was that strange phase during the summer where we were watching what was happening with Ducati and Paco Bagnaia. Um, Not only did we have his uh, little incident in Ibiza um, just before Silverstone where he managed to let's say, subvert expectations and, and take a, a very needed and creditable result. But then also the Mizano helmet gate, the whole Dennis Rodman dedication tribute. Uh, it just generated a lot of talk. I mean, credit to our colleague Matt Osley for bringing up those themes. Um, it felt like people were talking about MotoGP um, in a wider sense. It was also a time when people were talking about sprint races, how the sport was going to evolve. Um, it felt like a very tumultuous kind of period really in the season for things that were going on not just on the track and um, it gave us some stuff to write and talk about uh, it gave the fans some also some stuff to debate about and uh, I, I just enjoyed the the diversity I think of the material emerging from the paddock um, it was rightly or wrongly stuff to kind of get your teeth into I suppose so um, you know I'll, I'll default to that Neil Yuri is smiling at me which means you're usually about to cast some sort of insult my way feel free or oh, what was your personal highlight of the year <laughs> well, um, I, I wasn't uh, going to insult you at all, Ed, no. Um, I was just thinking back to my highlights of the year and it was making me uh, smile in a kind of little uh, daydream pause. But yeah, I mean, 
just a quick comment. I think, you know, 2020, 2021, obviously um, very happy to do this job. This job is fantastic. Not complaining about this job. But with everything that happened in 2020, 2021, with the pandemic and with the restrictions that were in place, doing this job was not always that enjoyable. Um, certainly traveling to the races in 2020 was not fun. Uh, 2021, well, yeah, I'd say only up until the last two or three races where there was a bit of freedom again, could you actually go out and experience some of the places you were visiting? Um, so this year it was fantastic just first of all to to be able to do the season again and, and to, to go out, to go out for dinner with your colleagues, to um, you know do a bit of touristy sightseeing in and around the races and, and that kind of opened up a few opportunities. So um, certainly what wasn't my highlight was sharing a room with Dave in Aspen <laughs> and uh, having to leave the room midnight because of uh, the, the copious snoring that was coming at me from the, uh, the other side of the room. Um, but I think my highlight would have to be, um, it was probably a mix up of Argentina. We obviously had the cancelled day on Friday and that mean everyone in the paddock went out on Thursday night and got roaringly drunk um, on some of the very fine Malbec that is available in that part of the world that was a fun evening and i would also say prior to the indonesian grand prix uh getting to lombok i mean it's a pain in the arse to get there especially from europe it really is a long old journey to go for one weekend but lombok as an island is just fabulously beautiful um and i think i got there early i had to do something like 24 hours of quarantine for covid um and then I had a free day, I think, just before everything started. And that was a bit of a rarity, just having all of Wednesday. Um, so, yeah, we hired some scooters, rode around the island, visited some beaches. And, um, yeah, uh, fabulous place, fabulous part of the world. So I think, yeah, Lombok would have to would have to take the, uh, the prize there. And knowing you, Neil, I'm sure you had to pitch up in some tent somewhere on the edge of the beach and uh, make do um, <laughs> in, a, in a place that's still developing its infrastructure to host international motorsport events. But um, no, it's a very eloquent summary of, of the year. So fair play. Of course, um, you know, traveling to MotoGP through the pandemic, uh, Dave, you and I kind of suffered mostly through Zoom calls, uh, which was a, a form of uh, necessary torture by itself. Um, you know, I'm glad things are a little bit more back to normal. And 2022 was a taste of the world championship as we all kind of know it and uh you know kind of love it in, in, a, in a surreal way but dave um your your personal highlight uh, you told us this before we started recording and I, I think it's fantastic um it's something i think we should recommend to anybody that has a motorcycle license and likes racing or watching motorcycle racing um tell us a little bit about what you took away from the summer of this year yeah, I mean, my, uh, well, in fact, it was the entire summer. Basically, from uh, Saxon Ring to Austria, I traveled to all of the uh, races by motorcycle. Um, but the, the trip to Austria was fantastic. Um, uh, it took a few days to travel down and then a few days to travel back. If you go to a motorcycle race, you really need to go on a motorcycle because it really makes it, it, it adds such an extra dimension uh, to the race. It's just, it, it just makes it really, really special. Um, but obviously, you know, like riding through Germany, the, the Germany, I think is probably the most underrated vacation, uh, sort of holiday destination. Uh, you can imagine the countryside is lovely. The little villages and towns are beautiful. Um, uh, the road as long as you stay away from sort of you know the the the, the main and most obvious roads there's lots and lots of lovely roads um 
really enjoyed myself riding down. Uh, then in Austria, staying in a yurt, which I'd never done before, which was I managed to uh, actually bark the top of my head uh, on the very first night there and uh, was wandering around with blood coming out the top of it for most of the weekend. Um, but apart from that, it was great. It was. It is just... The one thing I do miss about this job is travel my motorcycle. Well, our, our holidays used to consist of, uh, you know, jumping on the bike um, for three weeks and traveling around, staying somewhere for three days and hiking about and then, you know, riding for another couple of days somewhere else. And uh, and not being able to do that is um, gives me physical pain. Um, so being able to ride down to Austria was was absolutely fantastic some wonderful roads even uh, riding back through the absolute pouring rain on the uh, was it the monday or the tuesday i can't remember um uh it so i'd absolutely hammering it hammering it down monday i think it was monday and tuesday that it was it was really really raining and then it starts clearing up again and uh, and it was it was just yeah really enjoyed it um would recommend it the only one thing that i would say is it would be nice if um you go to a motorcycle race as a journalist on a motorcycle uh, they as soon as you arrive at the track the security do their very level best to <laughs> try to make your life an absolute misery and you end up sort of you know running people over punching people whatever um because they don't understand that you've arrived on a motorcycle um it it's quite difficult to sort of just the practicalities of it, you know, like showing your pass and all the rest of it. Um, uh, but you sort of, you know, they, they want you to park on a piece of, uh, preferably on a piece of sandy ground with no support, uh, as far away from the from the paddock as possible. It's just, uh, it, it, it is, it, it remains an extremely mysterious uh, thing. But the, actually, the manufacturers, you would think there are five motor, motorcycle manufacturers in uh, in MotoGP, and obviously BMW also massive motorcycle manufacturer who also support the um, uh, support the series and heavily sponsor the series uh, uh, and yet they don't help anyone get to the motorbike uh, uh, you know get to the races on the motorbike which is um just completely bizarre so yeah um if you if you own a motorbike um go to a motorbike race on a motorbike it it's it it makes it so much better. I mean, motorbikes make everything so much better, uh, but, uh, but they also make motorbike racing even better. A glorious way to sign off. Uh, once again, thanks everybody for listening throughout the year. Thanks also to Renthal and Fly Racing. We'll have more content on our Patreon channel in the coming weeks and until the first 2023 show, which we hope to have with a very special guest. Happy holidays, everybody. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Recording. Recording. That's what I didn't do last time. Recording. Check, 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 check. Okay. I'll have to go through my spiel again now.